Hello, and welcome back to the Beyond Leadership Podcast. So last week, I talked to Shana Hammond from Lead for Liberation. And if you go back and listen to that episode, she mentioned at least once, if not twice, and again, after our recording, when we were talking, that I had to talk to her program director, Lauren Henley. So that's exactly what I'm doing today. We're picking up that conversation with Lauren, who is part of the Lead for Liberation team. She, like I said, is the program director over there, and she facilitates one of their programs called The Conscious Racist. Um, The conversation is really wonderful because Lauren brings a whole new perspective to the diversity and inclusion space and to this conversation that we're having. So without further ado, here's Lauren. You're listening to the Beyond Leadership Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Mae Chipchinski. It is my purpose in life to use the lessons I've learned from more than a decade of leadership experience in everything from business to politics to nonprofit and the military to help you become the leader you've always dreamed of having. Whether you lead a network marketing team, a Bible study, a global brand, or a family of four, Every week, I'm going to walk you through tangible ways to grow your influence and make your vision a reality. So if you're ready to drop the burnout and bullshit strategy you've been fed and design your own aligned leadership style, you're in the right place. Let's go. Lauren, thank you so much for joining the show today. Um, As I mentioned in the intro, I had a conversation with Shayna on the show last week, and she recommended time and time again, that we have you come on and talk about uh, Lead for Liberation and the programs you run and your way of doing things. But I also kind of want to talk about your story before we get started. So why don't you tell me and everyone listening a little bit about you? Sure. Um, So my name is Lauren Henley. I'm the program director at Lead for Liberation. Um, My kind of adult story is that I um, worked for 16 years, um, almost 17 in urban education as a teacher and then eventually principal on the west side of Chicago. Um, It was my way of addressing racial equity and um, that's what really brought me there through a program called Teach for America. But it started way before that. I grew up in the south what I like to refer to as the Redneck Riviera, the panhandle of Florida, and um, very Southern culture, very uh, religious culture, very conservative culture, and had kind of an awakening when I fell in love with another guy at my school that just happened to be Black, and we started dating, and um, all these things would happen. Like my parents' friends wouldn't let him come over when we all got together. Um, one time, we were pulled over by the police, and he was mistreated. And I, I never had had any kinds of experiences like that. We would get, you know, strange looks and mistreatment in stores. Different teachers like pulled me aside at my school and would ask me like, "What are you doing? What's wrong with you?" I was a cheerleader, student council president, um, 
just like very, you know, National Honor Society. And it was communicated to me like I was like ruining my reputation and who I was. And so all of that, I was just totally in shock. I had no idea that that was, you know, the reality for so many people of color. And um, he he would laugh a little bit at my naivete. Um, like he couldn't believe that I didn't know. This was like his everyday world from living, you know, in that community. And um, I just was so angry and upset about it. And it really ignited something very deep in me. And I just made a beeline. Like I pretty much like everything, it was, it became the only thing that mattered to me was racial equity. I went to college and I studied with a race professor where we studied white people's uh, perspective on race. We would interview white people um, by other white bodies to kind of see what they would say about race when people of color weren't around and did research on that, um, minored in African-American studies and then graduated in three years so I could join Teach for America, moved to Chicago, turned 21 a couple weeks before I started teaching, um, first on the south side of Chicago and then eventually the west side of Chicago. Okay. That's such a, a, a fascinating perspective because for you it started young. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess fast forward adulthood, right? You, you went through college, went through Teach for America which is a a great program, a very noble cause. And what has led you to Shana and to lead for liberation and and really to continue this passion as your, like, bring home the bacon work? Yeah, great. Um, When I was um, when I was still in Teach for America, I, I just performed really well. I was asked to be a curriculum specialist. I started uh, teaching for uh, Teach for America on the side, and a lot of that was like leading diversity equity conversations and facilitating race conversations. So I started doing that in my early 20s and continued to do that and then did it with my staff um, as a principal. But I continued to hit this wall of recognizing that Um, No matter how committed we were to kids and how good we got at supporting, especially like our students were all, we had all black students from the West side, the consciousness of the adults, the emotional intelligence of the adults. And in some cases, I would say the spirituality or lack thereof of the adults kept getting in the way of our ability to really support kids, Um, adults getting really triggered, adults Um, not having really faced their privilege and how racial bias was impacting the way that they were not, you know, equitably teaching students or treating parents in equitable ways, not available for other people's experience and multiple truths. And so, you know, it's a really difficult job what I did. um, And I did it for a very long time. And I I was really burnt um, towards the end. And took kind of a sabbatical for a little while. I got my certification as a conscious leadership coach um, and was going to kind of even move away from racial equity and just do kind of consciousness leadership coaching. And then um, the George Floyd situation happened. And Shana and I had reconnected by accident because, well, I guess it's synchronicity really, like she was in Austria, literally learning emotional intelligence training. And a guy from my coach's program was like, they were both talking about the network of charter schools that 
she worked for and, and we worked for the same network. And he was like, do you know Lauren Henley? And we had known each other um, kind of as peers and he reconnected us and we just had started having some conversations and I was really interested in the work she was doing, but there really wasn't any work to do together until George Floyd happened. And then, you know, all of a sudden there was an exponential demand for this work that we had kind of been pulling teeth for people to even be interested in doing before that. And so I started doing some projects with her as a consultant and then came on full time. We ended up rebranding the organization, rewriting a lot of the content. Um, and yeah, into what it is today, what it is right now. Okay. So George Floyd, that was just over two years ago. So you've been with Lead for Liberation for about two years now? Yes. Uh-huh. Awesome. And um, so one of the things that we had talked about, Shana and I, last week was your organization's, um, she called it the defense to offense way of doing things. And I'd kind of like you to go a little bit deeper into that and, and what that means and how you take people from defense to offense. Great. Thank you. Um, well, so often in racial equity and this focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion is a focus on putting a Band-Aid over a very systemic problem. And basically the actual systems that were created were not created equitably. So when you focus on trying to put Band-Aids on the problem or, you know, another solution that people find is just trying to really, really deeply intellectually understand, you know, race and class and diversity equity, and when people try to intellectualize it, it's it becomes a defense, like who's doing it wrong, who, you know, um, kind of looking at all the ways that the system is not serving um, marginalized bodies. And so for us, we focus on offense because we look forward at liberation. We reimagine the systems and structures of an organization through the lens of liberation um, and, and support organizations to operationalize that and figure out how to move forward instead of focusing on the problem. We also focus our work as a leadership development organization. So we, it's kind of a more holistic approach. We weave diversity, equity, inclusion in everything that we do, conversations about race, um, as well as other like diversity and equity issues. But ultimately we are developing the leaders, the skills, the consciousness, um, the emotional intelligence of leaders so they are better equipped to handle the complexities of these types of conversations and realities in the workplace. Now, those things that you just mentioned, the the emotional intelligence and whatnot, is are those the tenants of the organization? Well, we call them, we have what's called the liberatory culture condition. So I don't know if you've um, read any of like Patrick Lencioni's work um, and the five dysfunctions of a team, but he's basically kind of a, a pretty popular leadership author who writes through the lens of um, kind of like parables. And so we took some of those, we looked, but he didn't write them. He's a white, you know, white identifying man, and he wrote them through the lens of that. And so we reimagined that and said, like, what 
if these are the dysfunctions of a team, like what are the conditions that need to be created in order for liberation to thrive? And what we find so often when we go into organizations is that they're trying desperately to improve their culture and plant all these seeds. Like maybe they're trying to improve diversity in hiring, um, or maybe they're trying to have like create more belonging. And many times they're failing or it's not creating the outcomes that they want because what we say is that they planted seeds in soil that isn't nourished. It doesn't have the conditions that are needed. Instead, it's, there's a lot of white supremacy culture. There's a lot of fear consciousness and liberation can't grow in that, in that reality. So for us, we come in and we offer these six conditions. The first and foundational one is emotional intelligence. Um, there's four components of emotional intelligence, uh, self-awareness, um, self-management, and then social awareness and relationship management. So how you lead yourself and how you lead others. Then from there, we focus on trust and transparency and supporting um, more transparent communication and decision making, um, as well as trust building in the organization. And then the third one is clarity and commitment. So how clear are your agreements? How aligned are you in integrity with your mission, vision, values? What are you committed to? And do your actions and choices as a leader match? Or are they misaligned? And because that can also break down trust. Are you making clear agreements? Are you following through? Um, and those that's kind of like the foundation bucket. And then if you once that is in place, then you're available for transformative relationships. And transformative relationships is just beginning to see that relationships are always an opportunity for growth, that conflict is should be invited as a way to increase the diversity of thought, um, to be available for, for multiple truths. And then from there, we work on collective accountability and what does it mean to be collectively accountable to outcomes, move through harm, repair harm together, um, and to be collectively accountable to the agreements that you made when you were getting clear. And then finally, dynamic process and outcomes. That's the last one. Um, in that one, we really support people to honor uh, both process and outcomes and not just outcomes. Um, we support people to be more available for emergence and we teach something called liberatory design which is a term coined by the National Equity Institute and the Stanford Design School around how to co-create and co-design for people at the margins and to ensure that you're not perpetuating harm and oppression as you create systems and structures in your organization. And so that's kind of like the, those six conditions and teaching those and practicing those. Um, we usually take six months to a year to really work with organizations to deepen their practice. And we st always start with the top. We um, only work with organizations whose highest leadership structure is willing to do the work first. And then we usually move from there to the other layers of the organization. That was going to be my question. I, I was going to ask you, does it normally start at the top or is it is it often like a, a grassroots thing that organizations and companies are realizing that they need better diversity and inclusion and they need uh, you and your company to come in and help them with this? But you said you only work if it's 
if it's the leadership that really wants it and they're willing to commit. Well, the way we see it is that in most organizations, you're kind of like maybe lower level level managers are usually far actually ahead of in terms of like they're aware, more aware of what the organization needs. They're ready for change. They see the gaps, but they can't move forward and get to the places they want to go if the CEO, the COO, the executive director are not aligned and not on the same page. And so for us, we would just rather work with, you know, those C-suite teams that are ready to commit to this work and to operationalize it um, and who are willing to shift their consciousness because leaders, uh, the consciousness of a leader is a ripple effect to every single person they lead. I was training someone today and I was just saying like, you know, most people and managers and culture is a reflection of the leader that um, is directly managing a team. And so it's just really important to us that those leaders are willing to take responsibility because otherwise we would be developing the other people in the organization even further away from probably what the top of the organization is committed to. So do you ever run into like split teams, I guess? So like, you know, you diversity and inclusion is, is an initiative that a lot of companies, a lot of organizations are, are taking on, especially in the past couple of years. Um, and for good reason. But do you ever, I guess, how would you handle organizations that come to you and say like, hey, we need diversity and inclusion training. We need to work on this. But like, we don't really need it because like Joe works down in accounting and he's black. Yeah, we wouldn't partner with them. Like we don't come from a place of scarcity that like we need a client or that you know what I mean? We, we trust and believe that there's perfect alignment and we bring a set of criteria to the table and um, just the way that they would bring criteria for us and, and decide for ourselves that they're in, a, in, line, in alignment and um, energetic integrity with our organization and our values. And that doesn't mean they have to be perfect and it doesn't mean they have to be you know, so far advanced in diversity and equity work. It's not that, but it's just that that commitment is there. Like we, you know, they're willing to really invest financially. There's certain things that just really show if people want to do the work. And we, we tell people like, we're, we're not like the tier one organization. Like we're really tier two, like we're after maybe your organization is like learning the basics with someone else. And we're really for those organizations that are ready to go deeper. We find that many of our partners are like actual organizations who are working in a social justice field, like outwardly, they are outwardly, their mission is around social justice or even racial equity, but internally their culture is not always align, aligning or they're not living um, fully in their highest potential around liberation and they want to grow in that area. I I love that. Not, not even just specifically for your company and for your organization, but I love that as a business model, like only taking on clients that are completely energetically aligned and not taking on folks who are just willing to pay the dollars, but maybe not willing to put in the work. 
I think a lot of organizations fail at that because you see the dollar signs and, you know, it, it, it affects your bottom line if you say no. But I guess what enabled your leadership team at Lead for Liberation um, to be able to be so selective with your clients? Well, I mean, I think I, first I want to just say that all most drama in relationships comes from misaligned commitments. I learned that from a mentor in my um, coaching program and that, um, you know, it's just like someone like saying like dating somebody, but they don't really want a relationship like it's going to create drama. Right. So um that that's just like that's why I think that shows up so much because we become like performative or we want to check things off a list versus really honoring what we're most committed to and and where our values are, um, which is aligning to liberation. And for us, I think I like for Shana and I, and especially Shana because she's been leading this organization for ten years. Like, there's a lot of spiritual, emotional work that has to be done as a leader to hold the consciousness of liberation. And what we mean by that is shifting out of fear consciousness and into consciousness of acceptance, courage, trust, where you see the world as a safe place and where you believe that you can attract all the resources that you need and that the more aligned you are in your internal system and the more you know your own truth, you're going to create that truth outside of you. And so I just think that, um, starting with Shana and then in my own life, like we've really been able to do the work and it's been rigorous and sometimes excruciating work to get in alignment with ourselves and have learned the hard lessons that it's not even worth it anymore to, you know, move in directions that are out of alignment. Hmm. And for people who, you know, maybe don't have a big team for our, our solopreneurs or our starting out entrepreneurs, who are looking to start this, this really deep-rooted work of finding what it means to be in alignment, um, what would you, what advice would you have for them? Yeah, so the first thing that uh, we have people do is called um, an integrity inventory. And again, like other spiritual teachers that we've had, like these are not new tools or these are not tools that we, you know, created ourselves. They're tools that we have adapted and continue to share. But um, basically, like we'll have people give a survey to everyone in their life and say, like, what are you doing when you're the most happy? What are you doing when you're the most alive? You know, what are your values? And we help and we help people determine what their values are. And then we help people determine how they're out of alignment. Like what, what are you concealing or withholding? What are you not sharing with other people? What emotions are you not willing to feel? How are you out of alignment with the agreements that you make on a regular basis? Like how many times have a day do you say you're going to do something and you don't follow through with it? Um, like all of those things are energetic misalignments. And so you want to help people find their compass and find for them what makes them feel the most alive because that's how you know you're in energetic integrity is when you feel more alive and you have energy and then you help them remove and move away from or clean up the places where they're out of alignment. That's as an individual. And then we kind of do something similar for organizations 
we say, is this really the mission vision values that is most true for you right now? Or are you running an organization with a mission vision that you're, that's old and outdated and, and doesn't even, or values that aren't living and breathing for you. And then we help them get clear, like what they're committed to around their mission, vision values, and then start to align, you know, their culture, their systems, their structures, how they show up as leaders to what they say, you know, is the mission that they want to bring into the world. I love that. Doing the personal work first, followed by the strategy work. Mm-hmm. And then you get into the the nitty gritty, the good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Lauren, thank you so much for joining me today. I've, I've really enjoyed expanding on this conversation that we had with Shana last week. Um, where can folks find you other than obviously going to the Lead for Liberation website? Um, how can people get in touch with you? Yeah. I mean, obviously the website, we have a LinkedIn page. We have an Instagram page. Um, they can email me Lauren at leadforliberation.com. Um, so yeah, those are like probably the main ways to get in contact with us and to learn more about what we're doing. All right. Thanks again so much, Lauren. It was great hearing your story today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the beyond leadership podcast. I sincerely hope that you got something out of today that you are going to be able to take and use on your journey to wherever it is you're going. If you liked what you heard today, be sure to subscribe and share your takeaways on social media. Don't forget to tag me at Sarah May Ski on Instagram. While you're waiting for the next episode, please check out our exclusive Beyond Leadership community over on Facebook to connect with more like-minded and like-hearted individuals dedicated to learning, leading, and encouraging right alongside you every day. Until next time, let's go.